how many of y'all have ever seen the, the show, used to see the show Kitchen Nightmares, or you're at all familiar with Gordon Ramsay? Yeah, he's kind of, he's a little bit mean, you know, well, he's a little rough. Uh, but I've seen some episodes and, uh, you know, back when they were running, and I guess he's got some other shows on, I don't know. But I, I did watch a few episodes of that uh, years and years ago, and it was a series about how Gordon Ramsay, this incredible host, uh, would go to these restaurants that were in trouble. They were about to close their doors. And uh, he would show up and rescue them because their kitchens needed rescue. And what was so interesting is these, these restaurants that were on the verge of closing, they seemed like they were just about to go out of business. They looked really good. Somebody had obviously spent some money on curb appeal and finding the right location and all the rest and also making the environment warm and welcoming and all the rest. But at the heart of all the problems in all these different restaurants, it was essentially the same thing. The food wasn't any good. And so part of the humorous conflict that happened in each of these shows is Gordon Ramsay was just trying to get the people at the restaurant, the workers, the owners, the managers to understand just how bad the food really was. These owners were in sort of a denial. They kind of had awakening moments because they had to obviously be aware enough to call Gordon Ramsay, right? I mean, you don't call Gordon Ramsay to come to your restaurant and then go on television unless you know that something's kind of off. But even though they knew something was kind of off, they still needed someone who could be brutally honest with them. And Gordon Ramsay, if he was anything, was always brutal and honest. It's kind of like you have an awakening moment and you go, I need to go to the doctor. And then you go to the doctor and you go, oh, I had no idea. Or sometimes people have these moments and they think, I just need to go to church. And then they go to church and go, oh, I had no idea. And these people would go to Gordon Ramsay. And it would take him basically until the middle of the episode to help them to understand just how bad the food was. And so he would do these things like sit down with them and order maybe a half dozen items off the menu and have the people who worked in the kitchen actually watch him eat the food And with great passion and clarity, he would communicate, this is terrible. And he would help them turn the restaurant around. Now, here's what's kind of interesting. Whenever people could be honest, I mean, if they could just honestly appreciate the reality of the situation and then relinquish control of the restaurant, at least for a season, to this person who'd swept in to save the day, their restaurant could be rescued in a matter of just a few days. It, it seemed like things were turning around, maybe in a matter of a, about three months. It was a whole new place. Business is booming because they were able to see the reality of the situation and turn it over to a savior. Now, that show has kind of been replaced by a bunch of other shows, and they're not all about kitchen shows or restaurant shows. How many of you all have ever seen The, the Prophet? Does that ring a bell? All right. Woo! You're my people. I, lo- I lo- really, I love that show. I don't watch it all the time, don't record it, but whenever I'm flipping through, I think it's on CNBC, really good. You've got this guy, Marcus Lemonis, who goes in and rescues these businesses. He'll go into a business that is failing at, at their request. He'll come and assess the situation. He'll look at their daily operations, and he'll interview the managers and the owners and, and uh, look at the books and the bottom line and all the rest. And then, in exchange for part ownership in the company... He will come in and rescue the business. The company will say, okay, we'll give you 20% of the the business. And he'll say, I need 100% of the control. And he controls the business because he knows if he doesn't control it, it's going to fail. And he wants to save the business and save the, the employees and make a lot of money and all the rest. It's really, really good. Now, here's what's interesting. In all of these situations, you know who the real life winners are in these reality shows like The Partner or The Prophet 
or Kitchen Rescue or some episodes of Shark Tank. The real life winners are the people who repent. The people who are the real life losers are the ones who don't. You see, all of these shows are about repentance. You thought, I, I thought they were about success. No, they're all about repentance. It's about people coming to appreciate the truth and then surrendering control to someone else who's come on their behalf to save them in their business. These are all about repentance. And the ones who win repent and the ones who lose don't. So repentance is a really, really good thing. And and so in the Bible, like in real life, repentance is spelled R-E-P-E-N-T-A-N-C-E. That's success. I mean, that's how you spell it. So if you're going to succeed in your soul, if you're going to succeed in your impact, if you're going to succeed in your marriage, you're going to succeed in your life, if you're going to succeed in any endeavor, you've got to come to grips with repentance. Now, a lot of times we think of it as kind of negative, but it's not. And so since the Bible spells success, R-E-P-E-N-T-A-N-C-E, you would think it would talk a lot about repentance. And fortunately, it does. Woohoo! So today, we're going to talk about repentance. And everybody says, woohoo! Yeah, we don't do amen. That's across the street. On three, we're going to talk about repentance. Woohoo! One, two, three. Woohoo! All right. I've never seen people so excited about repenting. This is great. And, and it is great because it brings about success in your life. You're as close as you... You're closer to where you want to be and closer to where God wants you to be because God's on your side than you might think because you're as close to being where you need to be as just repenting, as just turning things around, turning things over. That's repentance. And so today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to one of the more gripping passages in all the Bible about repentance. And as you might suspect, if it's one of the more profound, gripping passages, it's going to have Jesus in it, and it does. So we're going to turn our attention to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. But before we stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word, I want to warn you, on the surface, at least, as we read through this text, especially if this is the first time you've looked at it, you're going to feel like Gordon Ramsay is talking to you. You're going to feel like maybe this is Marcus Lemonis having this kind of heart-to-heart moment with you. Please allow Jesus... To be as straightforward with you as those who save the businesses of other people. Can you do that? Can you agree to do that? All right. Here we go. Out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word, would you please stand for the reading of Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. 
If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, here Jesus is obviously talking about repentance. But before we get into what Jesus says about repentance, let's just kind of be honest about where we are, maybe where you might be at this moment or where we are as a culture. On the whole, when it comes to this notion of repentance, we don't warmly welcome the idea. And let me tell you why people are not very warm to the idea of repentance. Two reasons. The first reason is this. A lot of people don't like the idea of repentance because repentance means that I'm admitting some sort of wrong, that I'm not where I need to be, that I need to turn around, that I've got an issue, that I've got a problem, that I've got a shortcoming. And so for a lot of people, repentance is equated with weakness. You're weak if you repent. Now, that's how we sometimes will feel about it if we're on the verge of repenting. But the reality is, if you see somebody else who's repenting, who's at least admitting they're not where they need to be, that they're trying to get help to turn things around, when you see other people doing that, you actually think, that's that's strong, that's a good move. I've got this person that I follow on Twitter, his name is J.J. Zacharyson, he does some uh, sports analysis, and the reason I like his sports analysis is because when he does the analysis, he will analyze his own analysis, and a lot of times when he is analyzing himself, he recognizes, I made a mistake, I did wrong, and he'll admit it. He'll say, I missed it on this one, I didn't quite get that, I, I didn't see this correctly, and he will apologize rather frequently with regards to the sports advice that he gives. So that's why I like him, I trust him, because he, he apologizes. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that I found this tweet last week. And uh, before we put it on the screen, let me kind of set this up for you. Uh, last week, I don't remember when it was, maybe it was a Monday, he had tweeted out the full name of the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins, and his name is Josh Rosen. Now, Josh Rosen's not that great a quarterback, and it's the worst team in the NFL by far. No kidding. They're, they're terrible. And so J.J. J. J. Zacharyson's talking about the quarterback, and he just mentions the full name of the quarterback. And in the context, it's kind of funny. He doesn't go to seed or go to town on it. He just mentions the full name of the quarterback. And the full name is Joshua Ballinger Lippincott Rosen, which just doesn't sound like a quarterback name. And so I chuckle when I read it. And I understand because when people find out my middle name, they sort of chuckle too. When people find out my middle name is Knox, they give me this kind of look, and, and my mom and dad are here, but I just have to tell you, they give me this look like, what were your parents thinking? And uh, it's a family name, which I didn't pass to my son because it took me a while to get over it. But anyways, I digress. Um, you know, really, your middle name is Knox. How did you get that name? And then they'll kind of give me this look of, oh, okay, now I get it. I've always wondered why you went by Ernest. Ernest goes to camp, Ernest P. Whirl, you know, all that. And why did you go by Ernest? Now that I know your middle name and your options, I understand you better. You know, I kind of get that a little bit from people. And so when I come across this guy who has two weird middle names, I'm like, oh, this is wonderful. Misery loves company, you know. And so I didn't really think much of it. The next day, here's the tweet that J.J. Zacharyson sends out. I love this. He says, I sent this tweet yesterday and deleted it just now. Some took it as being insensitive to Rosen being Jewish. And while that didn't even cross my mind when, it, when I hit send, I also don't want to have any ounce of, contrib- of contribution to any hate that's out there, so apologies on my end. And I just thought, that's a strong tweet. I like it when people apologize. I like it when people just go, oh, you know, that, that's right, my bad, I'm sorry, that was wrong. Didn't know, but now I know, I apologize. We like it when 
we are with friends that are like this. We trust analysts like this. We want to be a part of a church family like this. We want presidents and presidential candidates like this, don't we? We, we, we do, of course. It's strong. But a lot of times people think it's weak to admit you're not where you need to be. It's strong. I went to the hospital a couple of weeks ago and visited somebody at St. David's, and they were in the ICU, which, by the way, the ICU at St. David's, fantastic. It is so nice. I don't ever want to go there. But it's a really good ICU, and I'm in there, and I'm visiting with this guy, and he's about to be checked out, and, and he admits, he says, you know, I've got this problem with alcohol, and I'm done. I'm done with it. I'm done with alcohol. And then I see him a few days later and says, I, I'm done with it, but I also know that I've got this struggle, and I need help, and And when he's telling me all these things, I'm thinking, that's strong. For somebody to make themselves vulnerable, to say, I've got a need, I'm falling short, I need help, that's a strong move. I want to turn it around. That's strong. But in our culture, for some reason or another, when we start thinking about repentance, oftentimes, sometimes we're thinking, maybe that's weak. It's an admission that I'm not where I need to be, that I'm not further along than I've given you the impression of. That's one reason. There's a second reason, though, that we're not so warm to the whole idea of repentance, and that is, in our culture, it's almost impossible to repent because repentance seems to imply that someone else ought to be calling the shots or directing my life. That if I repent, that means that I've got to submit to my mom or dad or coach or culture or laws or God, even though he's wise and loving and all the rest. It just means that someone else really ought to be in charge of my life other than me. There's this poem that's written um, that some of you have quoted before, you, you know it, kind of, or at least a portion of it. Invictus, does that, does that ring a bell? This is William Ernest Henley. It's a strong name, strong poet. Uh, William Ernest Henley, and it, it goes like this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, that comes across pretty strong, but you know what he's saying, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There used to be this scroll. There used to be this thing that people kind of thought was the authority. And, if, and it was, there was a right and a wrong. And there, in, there used to be this little, I don't know, this narrow gate, this straight way, a narrow gate that people like you know, Jesus talked about. But that's old. Forget about it. I don't submit to the gate. Whatever gate I go through is fine. I don't submit to the scroll. If it's if I don't write it, it's not written. If that's the attitude or the disposition where you're coming from, if you're saying, well, I'm the captain of my faith, I'm the, I'm the captain of my soul, I'm the master of my faith. If that's where you're coming from, repentance is essentially impossible because there's not a straight and narrow that you need to stay on. All that matters is authenticity. If I go through the broad gate and I go through it authentically, that's all that counts. And Jesus would say, actually, no. Not really, no. The, the course is fine. The course is great. If it's my course, then the course is fine because it's mine. If I say this, it's fine because it's what I said. It's mine. When we repent, we're essentially saying there is a path and I didn't create it. There is a scroll and I didn't write it. There's a right and a wrong to which I need to submit my life. 
Which, by the way, if you've ever kind of wondered, why is it that churches that are kind of therapeutic are, I don't know, a little bit more attractive to people in our culture? Here's why. Because if you don't believe in a right and a wrong, we're an orthodox church. There are different kinds of orthodoxies. But an orthodox church says there's a right and a wrong. There's a, there's a, there's a good and a bad. And if there's the straight and narrow path, you need to stay on the straight and narrow path. A therapeutic church says Jesus is here to support you and help you reach your, your goals and your dreams. Sometimes our goals and dreams are the same as his. Sometimes they need to change and adjust. A lot of times people think in a therapeutic culture, I'm a Christian because I've invited Jesus into the car. He sits in the back seat, and on occasion I'll tolerate his input in backseat driving. And I kind of need someone to sit in the back seat because I need someone to have my back. But you're not a Christian simply because you've invited Jesus into the car. You're a Christian when you give Jesus the wheel. In a therapeutic culture, oftentimes repentance doesn't make sense. The therapist is just there to help you to authentically be what you want to be and help you to achieve your own particular goals. And so you can't come to Jesus in that kind of mindset as king, as savior, Lord, as master. You can only come to him as therapist. So there are reasons why oftentimes this whole idea of repentance isn't warmly embraced. It seems weak or it just seems out of step with the culture of which we're a part. But Jesus talks about repentance quite a bit because, again, like in the real world, the Bible spells success, R-E-P-E-N-T-A-N-C-E. So, of course, Jesus talks about repentance. But what he says oftentimes rubs us a little bit wrong. And so here's what I want to do before we get right into the nitty-gritty of what Jesus teaches about repentance. I want you to keep an open mind and just think, maybe, just maybe, Jesus is a lot smarter than we give him credit for. If you just thought Jesus was a little bit silly or old school or whatever by talking about repentance, I just want you to keep an open mind and just, I want to suggest to you that maybe Jesus is really, really onto something and he has incredible insight that we need to gain. Now with that, I want to elaborate on what Jesus says is necessary for repentance. And it's two things. Before we get into that, let's just talk about what he's mentioning here in this passage. Back to the passage. People come to Jesus and they say, you know those terrible events, these tragedies that we've experienced? You know that time where some people broke into this place of worship and killed everybody, where their blood was mixed with the sacrifices? Which, by the way, there's nothing new under the sun. It happened 2,000 years ago. It happens a couple of years ago. If you're thinking about the Tree of Life synagogue massacre in Pittsburgh or you're thinking about First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, that stuff's gone on. It happened in Jesus' day. It happens now. People wonder about it. And then there's this other thing that everybody knew about, this tragedy about a building falling down. Isn't that interesting? That just happened yesterday in New Orleans, this Building falls and kills 18 people. We don't know if 18 people were in the tower in Salome or they were just crushed by it when it fell on top of them. But they're just saying, hey, when there are these tragedies that happen in life, does that mean that those people are worse sinners than all the rest of us who survived? Now, this is a very, very natural question that people have, because when something bad happens to you, don't you just naturally go, what did I do? What did I do something wrong? Or if something really great happens for you, like you win the lottery, which I'm supposed to tell you, tell you you can't play the lottery, but if you play the lottery and you tie 
50%, it's not a sin. But anyways, I digress. Uh, but if you win the lottery, okay, now if you don't like that, just, just joking around, you send an email, and, and I'll listen to you. My email address is john at msbchurch.com. Anyway, suppose something really happens, and you win a lot of money, and you go, what did I do? You go, did I do something right? And Jesus is saying, that's the wrong question. Sometimes we go to the Bible with the wrong questions, so we get the wrong answers. We also need to let the Bible give us the questions. And Jesus says, that's just the wrong question. You're, you're looking at the, everything all wrong. You shouldn't be asking, are we better than these people or, or not? Or, or are, we worse, are they worse sinners than we are? Is this group better than this other because of circumstances? He says, that's not how the world works. But here's what ought to happen. When you see the news and the building falls down in New Orleans, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. That's what you need to do. You need to repent. Now, some of you go, what? That is just so weird. Yeah, I know. That's Jesus. He's shocking, but he's always taking us somewhere really good. Here's where Jesus is taking us. Let's kind of get right to this. Two things that are being communicated here by Jesus. One is if you repent, you cannot repent unless you realize that you deserve death. I mean, the wages of sin is death, right? We know that, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life, the good life, that's a gift. That's what we don't deserve. What we do deserve is death. And Jesus says, when you see that happening to other people, you shouldn't condescend like, well, they're worse sinners than I am. You go, yeah, that's what I deserve, and I'm so grateful that that didn't happen to me. And I'm going to enter into their suffering, too, because I know that I deserve that, and I'm not going to condescend and say, well, I'm up here and they're down here. But he says it ought to cause you to repent. But not only should that cause you to repent, but you having been missed by the tower when it falls and something good happens, he said, you ought to repent of that too. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it doesn't matter. Whenever anything in your environment happens, you need to repent because all of life is repentance. Most clearly we see that Jesus is saying, you see that tragedy, you ought to repent. But you go elsewhere and you see the corollary, the adjoining but different truth being expressed, like over in um, Romans chapter 2 verse 4. I love this from Paul. He says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? What this verse is telling us, and what Jesus has been telling us, is whatever you experience, whether you're seeing suffering in other people, or you're experiencing you know, the lottery or some kind of windfall in your own life, whatever it is, whether you're experiencing something good or something bad, everything should drive you to repent. You say, well, that, what, How? How can everything drive me to repentance? Why is that a good thing? Here's what Jesus is driving at. Everything, good and bad alike, should drive you to repentance because everything has an opportunity to drive you to grace. We'll go at it like this. Real life. I see that tower falling on the news yesterday morning. And, uh, and I'm thinking, who's in the building? And, of course, I'm praying for them. There's not a single moment that passes through my mind of, They deserve that. Of course not. That has nothing to do with the gospel. That's a very religious way of thinking, and some religions do think that way. That's not how Christianity looks at it. And in that moment, of course, I'm praying for them, like many of you would do. My heart goes out to them. And I'm also thinking, at the same time, I'm so glad my faith is in Jesus Christ. I don't know who's in that building. I hope their faith was in Jesus Christ, too, because he says, though you die, you'll never die. You'll never perish if you place your faith in me. And so I'm just grateful that in that moment, I know I deserve death, but at the same time, I'm glad that that's not coming for me for all eternity because of the grace of Jesus Christ. I deserve it, but I'm not going to get it because God wants to give me more than what it is that I deserve. So I think about that. 
And then in those moments when somebody gives me a pat on the back or a handshake or cookies or a card or I get to look at my wife while she's sleeping, which I, I figured is kind of creepy, but I do it. Sorry. Uh, and, and in those moments, I, I kind of go, God, you're good to me. This is not what I deserve. So whether it's a moment of tragedy or a moment of blessing, everything has the opportunity to drive me back to grace. Grace is needed for me to repent, but repentance is also needed for me to continue to experience grace. In a very real sense, if you're going to actually be experiencing God moment by moment, you have to moment by moment also be living a life of repentance. It's not, Jesus isn't communicating that repentance is self-loathing and I hate me and da-da-da. That's not repentance. It's something else. Everything, the good and the bad and everything in between can drive you to repent and in those moments to continually experience the grace of God. I think this is kind of interesting. You go back to the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, which, by the way, the official date for the beginning of the Protestant Reformation is when Martin Luther takes the 95 Theses, knocks them up on the door of the church in Wittenberg, All Saints Church. And this happened on October 31st, 1517, almost 502 years ago. Here, the first of the theses reads like this. I think this is so interesting. I'm just going to read this to you. Which, by the way, the whole reason he put the 95 theses on the wall is he was calling into question this practice of indulgences. Because people thought that they could pay for their punishment to go away financially or maybe through some moral works just to pay for the punishment to go away. He said, you can't cover for yourself and repent of your sin at the same time. It's one or the other. So he's this moral professor, this professor of moral theology at the university there in Germany. And he posts these theses on the wall. And the first of the theses reads like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's why we say Martin Luther had this position, all of life is repentance. Because at the heart of experiencing the grace of God is this exercise of repentance. So whether, whether you're mad, it, oh look, let me put it like this. Are you sad? Repent. Are you happy? Repent. Are you angry? Repent. Are you confused? Like some of you, yeah. Repent. that's the only thing that keeps our anger and our confusion and our happiness and our sadness from driving us to be, you know, these, you know, dead or self-righteous, religious, smug people. All of life is repentance. And if you're going to repent and you're going to repent effectively, you have to acknowledge, I deserve, that's this part of it, I deserve death. The wages of sin is death. I deserve for a tower to follow me. And some of you go, ew, that's just so gross. I know it's not in keeping with how our society operates, but let's hear Jesus out for just a second. You are, and I am, a part of a culture that thinks God owes us. We are. Our biggest question, and and I'm including myself in this, naturally our biggest question is, how can God let bad things happen to good people? And then somebody calls Jesus good and he says, nobody's good except for God. 
That, but our question is, how could God let bad things happen to good people? Because we all know that God owes all of us a good life and forever. That's the assumption behind that question. Back in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago and before, the big question was, how can, how can, a, how can a good God let good things happen to bad people? Our question was, how do bad things happen to good people? Back then, it was the question was, how, do, how does God let good things happen to bad people? And, and people would look at kings being evil, and they were living in palaces and living it up and eating rich foods and drinking rich wine, and then the rest of us are down here in the slums making bricks without straw. How could the good God let good things happen to bad people? Times have changed, haven't they? Who gets to be the point of reference? Now, as a Christian, we go, Jesus ought to be the point of reference. He's the one who ought to frame the question. He's the one who frames the debate. He's the one who tells us where we stand. If you're a Christian, that's what you do. It's kind of like this. Two people are standing on, on different sides of the river. The first guy shouts to the other guy, how do I get to the opposite side? And the guy over here says, you are on the opposite side. Well, that makes sense in Euclidean geometry because everything's kind of relative. But when it comes to God, who gets to determine who's the center of the universe? Well, as believers, we say he's the center. He gets to determine the point of view or the perspective. But even if you're not a Christian and even if you won't let Jesus have his due and he doesn't get to call the shots because he's not God, if that's your questions and all the rest, let's just go at it like this. Forget about God. Okay, just let's do a thought experiment together. Forget you're a Christian and you just know generally God created the world and God holds it together by the word of his power. We just Let's just start there. God created us and he sustains us. He holds us together. He gave us life and he continues to give us life. Well, then we got... We kind of owe God everything. At the very least, we owe God first place. Do people give God first place? No. That's why we have this word called idolatry. We put other things in God's place. We put ourselves in God's place. We put ourselves first. And then like sheep, we go astray, each of us to our own way. And the good shepherd is leading us to green pastures and still waters, but we're the sheep, and we run off in the other direction. And then when we fall into the mouths of wolves or off a cliff or into swift-moving water and drown, we get mad at the good shepherd because we wanted to do life our own way. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own ship. Forget the straight gate. Forget your way. I'm going to go my way. And then when the good shepherd doesn't give us wily sheep what it is that we think we deserve, we get mad at him. Does that make sense to you? Really? Isn't that kind of like Antonio Brown demanding $30 million from the team that he walked away from? I mean, i got news for you. We're all wily sheep. There's a little Antonio Brown inside of every one of us. It's true. God owes me, but I don't want to have anything to do with God. That doesn't make sense. Jesus is right. You know what we deserve as sheep who run away from the good shepherd and think he owes us everything? You know what we deserve? What we get? Death. Now, if that's all there was to repentance, this would be really, really bad, and this would be a very religious church, and nobody would ever want to come back again, and I get it, and we can't do the whole Wayne's World thing where we go, we're not worthy, we're not worthy, and then we go home, and then that's we call it good. That's not enough. That's not going to lead to the repentance that brings about life. Half the truth is understanding we deserve death. But the other half, the really, really good news, the good part of all of this is God wants desperately to give us what we don't deserve. And if you don't see that, and if you don't believe that, then any repentance that you have and any repentance that I have is going to be absolutely incomplete and crushing. Okay, let's, let's get back to, to the story that Jesus tells. 
In verses 6 through 9, Jesus tells this little story about this man who owns this vineyard, and he has a fig tree in the vineyard, and the fig tree isn't producing any, any fruit. And he's surprised because he's gone out three years in a row, and it never produces any fruit. It should be fruitful, but it's not. The owner says, i got to cut this thing down, and the caretaker says, just give it a chance. Give me a chance. I'll do something. I'll step in. I'll intervene. I'll till the soil. I'll fertilize it and take care of it and water it and all the rest. And, and then after a year, if it doesn't produce fruit, then cut it down because that's what it deserves. But I don't want it to get what it deserves. I want to try something. I want to invest my life in such a way that it starts to produce fruit. That's the story that Jesus tells. Now, Jesus doesn't interpret the story for us. You know why? Because he assumes that 2,000 years later, this side of the cross, the meaning of the story is so obvious, even I can get it. You know what the story is about, right? Who do you think is the owner of the vineyard? God. Who do you think the tree represents? Us. Who do you think the fruit is? The fruit of love, the fruit of repentance. Who's the, who's the caretaker who steps in to do whatever he can to make sure that the tree doesn't get what it deserves? Jesus. It's not that complicated. We go to this wonderful passage in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. And uh, Jesus, uh, there, Isaiah rather famously says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord said, let him have it. No, actually, that's not how the verse goes. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God is desperate to give us what it is that we do not deserve. Something other than what we deserve. Repentance sees all of this. Here's what I deserve. I deserve death. But here's what God wants me to have. Something other than what I deserve. I turned my back on the good shepherd and I ran into a desert. And the good shepherd, rather than letting me get what I deserve, came after me. He came after me into the desert. And he went into the desert, not just like Lawrence of Arabia risking his life to save somebody. He went out there and he died in the desert for me so that I would know life. He lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died so that I would get what I do not deserve. That's the fullness of the gospel. And so everything can drive you to the gospel. Everything can drive you to grace. Whether it's the bad things that you see, or the blessings you experience, the anger that you experience, the depression even that you experience, or the confusion that you experience, everything can drive you to grace. That's repentance. Now, the good thing is, when you go through life like this, interpreting everything in that framework, over time, here's what happens. You become more and more like Christ. You really do. You become more and more like the one who rescued you. You think, okay, that person shouldn't have said that or whatever, but I don't know where they're coming from, but the reality is, whatever they're getting, I deserve that too. And I want this person to, deserve, to get more than what they deserve and other than what they deserve because I know the story that surrounds me. And so I'm going to enter into the difficulty or the frustration and I'm going to pay a price for there to be some sort of reconciliation. I'm going to give them what they don't deserve because I was given what I don't deserve. And I'm not going to condescend to this other person because the reality is I'm in the same shoes that they're in. You go through this exercise enough over the years and over time and... That exercise of repentance that enables you to experience God moment by moment as grace, it does a transforming work. And guess what happens? Over time, Jesus has his way, and sure enough, this dead tree 
begins to bear fruit. Now, here's a a word of caution, and I need to end on a sober note. I want to end on an up note because that's just the way I like to do it. But here's the sober note, and it's the note that Jesus ends on. He says to the master of the vineyard, give me a year. Give me a year, and then if it doesn't bear fruit, okay, then the tree gets what it deserves. The reason this is so sobering is we cannot say, I'll take two. You're giving me one. I'm going to take two. I'm going to, I'm going to repent when I'm good and ready. I'm the master of the vineyard, and I say when it's time for you to cut it down, and it's not yet, it's going to be on my deathbed. Or I'm going to repent two years from now, because if I repented right now, it would be embarrassing. My, my, my family might find out, or my friends could find out, or, you know, or it'll be very, very inconvenient for me to follow through on whatever it is that you're leading me to do, God, and I'm not going to do that right now. I'm going to do it later. Don't you dare do that to God. You're not the master of you. It's not your vineyard. You don't come when you're prepared. You come when he prepares you. So if God has prepared you or is preparing you or is stirring in your heart and he says, you know, you need to apologize or you need to, and maybe you don't. Okay, I'm not saying you do. You need to turn a corner. You need to make an adjustment. You need to, well, now's the time to do it. Because it never gets any easier. Repentance is not one of those things that gets easier with time. It gets harder. And so sooner rather than later is better because you never know how soon it's going to be until it's too late. God, because he loves you, will not let you treat him in a way that is not appropriate for him because that would compromise his relationship with you. He will not let you treat him like a butler or a maid. I was thinking about that actually this morning. My mom, seriously, they gave me the name Knox. Okay, but other than that, pretty perfect parents. Okay, maybe not, but they're great. And my mom would cook all the time, and I loved it. There were lots of home-cooked meals when I was growing up. And when it was dinner time, and she would work during the day, and then in the evenings would cook, which I thought was fantastic. But in, in the evening, when the meal was done, time for dinner. Come on down. My parents would give me maybe 30 seconds to wash my hands or something like that, but I had to be there. Because it wasn't just mom, it was dad. Dad would not like it if I told mom later. Or I'll come when I'm good and ready. Or I'm doing something else right now. When the meal's ready and you're called, you better come. Because if you don't come, you could miss the meal. For two reasons. One, I had a brother who was not nearly as nice as me and he wouldn't leave any food for me. But that's okay. I'm not bitter. But besides that, even if my brother didn't eat everything and my parents didn't eat everything, they would put it up in the fridge and then it would be cold. And if I didn't come when I was supposed to come, they may not give me... Food. And good for them, because when it's ready, you come, because while God's a servant to you, he's not your maid. You come when he's ready, you come when he calls. That's the way that it works. Jesus says, just give me a year, and then if that doesn't work out, well, okay. Repentance doesn't get any easier. If God is leading you to do something, to make a change, to make an adjustment, to turn a corner, you don't tell him later. Maybe Maybe two years from now, three years from now. Now is the time to repent. It's always now. Because you never know how soon it will be until it's too late. So there's a balance here. You don't treat God like like a dog, like a butler, like a maid. You don't toy with God. And yet if God is moving in your life and he's telling you to come, well, then you come. 
Because when you come to him, he says, whoever comes to me, I'll never turn aside. I'll never turn asunder. I'll never turn him away. If God's calling you to come, you, you come. And no matter how fruitless your life has been or how long you've been where you've been or what you've done, it doesn't matter. When you come to him and he calls and he's readied you, everything else is cleansed. Everything else is forgotten. Everything is new. Isn't that great? And if you learn the cadence of repentance through your life and you experience him day by day by day by day, there's going to be fruit. It will happen. Let's bow forward a prayer. Father, we just say thank you so much for giving us what we do not deserve. Thank you for sending us Jesus. Thank you for giving us a caretaker. Thank you, Lord, for reviving us, for awakening us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, Christ died for us. Even when we were basically fruitless, you came and you wanted us to bear the fruit. We did not get the axe because Jesus did. So, Lord, as we go through our lives and experience uh, disappointment, as we see tragedy, as we experience blessing, as we experience all kinds of different things, we pray, Lord, that everything would drive us to repent so that we would know not self-loathing, but that we would know grace, that we would experience you. Grant us the gift of repentance, and when the repentance comes, help us to embrace it as the gift that it is that we would live lives of grace. Or some of us, we need to turn a corner with regards to very simple things, like just bearing witness. And maybe you're not calling us just to be Billy Graham instantly, but there's a friend or a neighbor or a family member, and you've laid them on our hearts, and it's time to go. For some of us, we know we need to change some personal disciplines, maybe just reading the Bible, picking it up, going through, being a part of a small group. For some of us, it's growing. For some of us, it's going. For some of us, it's both. For some of us, it's something else. But if your Holy Spirit is leading us to do something or make a change or an adjustment, help us to recognize all we need to do is face the truth, relinquish control to you, our Savior, and within a matter of months, our lives will look so much better than the businesses Marcus Lemonis has saved or the restaurants that Gordon Ramsay saved. Lord, you can do extraordinary things in us if only we will repent. So help us to do that. Give us the wisdom to do that and to do that now. And we pray that in Christ's holy name. Amen.